Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenrider. Hey, Tish. Uh, what are you drinking today? Um, I am drinking a rerun that people will probably hear quite a bit in the coming weeks. It's that mocktail with the apple cider vinegar. And this time it's cranberry, raspberry, sparky water, and a squeeze of lime. And it's delicious. That's my I mean, summer. You have been... You have been on that jam like all for like a month or something, right? I have, but also honestly for years. And it tends to be my like, ooh, summer's here kind of drink. Um, and I don't mm. know why, really, other than it kind of tastes like a cocktail, sort of. I mean, not really. Um, but it's just nice in the summer when I'm really kind of hot all the time. So are you a, a shrub drinker? Do you know about shrubs? Uh, tell me more because I feel like I've heard this and I can't remember. Okay, so, so not like shrubs, like the uh, those tiny plants that you guys do so well down there in Texas, but like shrubs are sipping vinegars. Uh, oh. We have a, a place here called Pink House Alchemy, and they make amazing shrub shrubs. Hmm. And I've turned on a lot of my non-drinking friends. These things are great. You put them in water with some yeah or over ice with some soda water or tonic water or something and i mean you make a little mocktail like you make it's and it's they're fabulous they're brilliant fabulous so go to pink house alchemy grab a couple because they're that good that sounds exactly up my alley yeah it's also very hipster so that's kind of a that's kind of a thing you guys do down there in texas we do decently in austin yeah all right seth what are you drinking this afternoon so I, I'm actually drinking nothing just yet, although I have a little bit of... I got a peanut right before I got on. <laughs> I have one in my throat, so I definitely need it because I'm <laughs> coughing like crazy okay. <clears throat> because of this thing. But can you hear that? Yep. Can you hear that shaking san- sandy sound? Okay. Mm-hmm. This what is, is it? called um, Element, L-M-N-T. It's an uh, mm-hmm. electrolyte drink mix. I just heard about it on a podcast this morning. Did you really? Yeah. That's fascinating. I've heard nobody talking about this, but now we're it's going to be on two podcasts in one week. So I'm going to pour it in my there little water bottle. See, can you hear that? I'm dumping it yep. in my water bottle. Then I'm going to shake it up a little bit. I'm going to put on the little lid. You hear the lid? And then we're going to mm-hmm. shake it up. And then I'm going to drink it over the course of this episode. This is I'm riveting really listening. Too because <laughs> yeah. I'm a little bit addicted to it. I'm not going to lie. Very cool. I'm going to have to look into them. Is, are they just kind of like those electrolyte drinks, but without all the crap? Yeah, it's a. I think it's supposed to be more natural. Um, it is yeah. a little salty, so you have to. You really do have to like put it in more than like just a bottle of water. Like it needs, a, you know, a solid twenty ounces of water, maybe more. Some people drink it with less, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. If if you prefer to drink the ocean, that's great. Uh, <laughs> I do not prefer to drink the ocean. I prefer to drink water. So. Um, yeah, so in my hydro flask, it's pretty perfect. Nice. Uh, which that was like the, this whole conversation is like literally probably the whitest thing I've ever said in my life. <laughs> my little electrolyte salts in my hydro flask. So there you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> that's, that's a good. real thing. So yeah. Tish, we've been talking a lot um, about a lot of things. And one of the things that I know you've been sort of scratching around the edges of lately, uh, talking about a little bit, writing about a little bit, is um, about a year ago? Was it a year ago now? Just over a, a year, year ago. months ago. Mm-hmm. 
a year and two months ago, you became Catholic. Yep. And so today I was going to ask you some questions about it, like why Catholic? I think that's mm-hmm. the overarching question that I have. Now, our listeners will know I'm Catholic too. This is not a uh, an apologetic podcast. We're not here to give all the reasons why you should be Catholic too. We have a lot of great listeners who are uh, not Catholic, who are Protestant, who are uh, not Christian, who are not anything. Um, mm-hmm. And we love all you too, just as much. So yep. this is not an apologetic exercise. It's just a question that I yeah. have. And, and particularly, um, I don't know if you've gotten this, but I've gotten the question of how could you become Catholic in light of the sex abuse scandal? Like right now, how could you do this now? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I would dive in by just saying... Why Catholic? And maybe we can wind around to that question by the end, or maybe we can save it for a later episode. I don't know. Yeah. It's a huge question. It's a frequent question in my inbox these days. I get asked this all the time, several times a week now. I feel very badly for those who have yet to hear a reply from me because I feel like I am waiting till I have time to write a full treatise and I just, I won't ever. And so they just go and sit there unread, but it, or not unread, unreplied to, but definitely not unread. So, Maybe I should first just apologize to all of you who have written me sincerely out of curiosity, and um, you have heard crickets from me. It's not out of lack of interest. It's not out of lack of wanting to open this door and walk through it. It's merely a logistics lack of time. Also, um, I don't know if you heard this bit of advice, Seth, but I heard this, and I thought there was real wisdom in it. Um I heard it, meaning through a book. Um, it was a book that I read on my like discernment journey that um, Mm. it was called something like your first year as a Roman Catholic convert or something like that, kind of tongue in cheek. And it it was written by a former Methodist pastor who also converted as an adult. And Mm. his bit of advice was your first year as a Catholic, just lay low, like just be a Catholic. You might feel Mm. this like energy and this excitement to like be all gung-ho and become that ultimately obnoxious person on social media trying to make the case that people have basically been talking about for 2,000 years um, and you're hoping you can cover it in one tweet or one Facebook post. Don't be that guy, basically. Um, And he's saying, you know, don't like hide it as though you're ashamed of it, but also just have a learner's posture and have a posture of just soaking it all in. And I thought there was a lot of wisdom in that. And so that's what I've largely been doing this past year. So Mm. I feel like, you know, a year and a few months into this is when I'm just now starting to feel kind of more comfortable with the idea of actually shedding some light on my story, even though I'm, I've never been like secretive about it or embarrassed or whatnot. It's just that there's a lot of, I don't, I guess I could say baggage, but it's, it's not so much baggage, like in a traumatic or personal way. It's more of, um, a lot of kind of like whenever you plow a field to plant seeds, you first have to get rid of rocks. I had to chuck a lot of rocks, um, aka yeah. misconceptions of what the Catholic Church yeah. was and was not before I could even consider getting this field ready for planting. So um, yeah. all that to say is that's my little premise. You also are an adult convert. So I think it helps to hear that at the start of this, that neither of us grew up Catholic, although you grew up knowing about Catholicism in a different way than I did because you went to school among Catholics, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I was uh I went to Catholic school from fourth through ninth grade and yeah. I think for me really that was um you know, those are formative years of your life. I grew up in my dad was Catholic, so I grew up going to Catholic school, but also um going to the Baptist church on Sundays and Wednesdays. So I had a really interesting mix yeah. uh in my religious upbringing. So for yeah. me there was really never the baggage I think that a lot of um you know Protestant slash non Catholic people have with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um just because I was raised in, around really good practicing um you know serving Catholic people. So I, I didn't have as much baggage. No, but when I first met you, you were I, I didn't I don't even know that you were curious, like innately Not curious about Catholicism. No. I think by the time that we had met, I think I was probably pretty clear that I was a sympathizer. Yep. Um, but <laughs> you you were not necessarily. And I, I'd, I'd be interested to know, like the first time we, we traveled, um, yeah. you and Kyle and Amber and I and a group of people went to, to Italy. And uh, we were going to all these amazing places and seeing all this amazing religious art. Um, and you never really seemed bent towards the the Catholic Church one way or another. Uh, did you feel anything while you were there in Italy? I can look back and say, yes, I did. But at the time, I didn't call it that. So just to give a little tiny 10 peso version of my backstory, I was raised non-denominational, which was sort of baptist just not in a name. And then after being an adult for, I mean, I, I don't remember how old I was, but it was about seven, eight years ago, we became Anglican. And then mm. I was Anglican on that trip. And it was suiting me just fine. We had actually a great local church, and it was scratching all the itches I felt like I had. So I would, it wasn't that I was anti-Catholic, I just didn't have a need for it, I guess. So, um, yeah. you know, to kind of explain that rock chucking thing, um. I would say earlier on in my life and maybe even a little bit into my teenage years, I had a pretty negative idea of Catholics. And Mm. that's mostly on me. That's largely because I really only knew the few that went to my public high school. And there was only one that seemed to even care. And she was lovely. And she was a friend of mine. Um, She was very activist-y, especially in the pro-life um movement of the mid nineties, you know, yeah. um, all the other Catholics at my public high school seemed to either not know anything or super did not care. And so honestly, they weren't a good reflection <laughs> of Christianity in my mind. Yeah. And so it just held zero appeal to me. And then, um, I went to a very, uh, I mean, it was very evangelical, but it was kind of a missions oriented church that actually would categorize Catholic countries as unreached or mission fields. Mm. And so there was this mm. idea that it wasn't true Christianity. It was mm. it was a distorted version of the original Christianity, whatever that was, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, um, was that was that overtly taught? Like, hey, go to whatever Catholic country because zero Christians. It was, but it wasn't the focus. So it, the okay. focus was on officially the 1040 window, which is predominantly either Muslim-dominated countries or animistic or 
something else. Yeah. Catholic church, yeah. Uh, Catholic dominant countries were on the fringe, but they were definitely seen as mission fields for sure. And so in some ways, yeah, yeah it was overtly taught, but we didn't really deep dive into it. And so I, I guess I just say all this not to throw that church under the bus because I, I did have an overall positive upbringing um, there and really a good foundation of a lot of things. But it was, it, I left not so much like being anti-Catholic. I just didn't think about Catholics. Like to me, it, yeah. it just, it was a yeah. non thing. And so later in life, sort of fast forward to a few years ago when I was an Anglican, um, you know, I know like a big appeal to the idea of being Catholic is its beauty, uh, the beauty of the liturgy, the art, the, um, the ambiance, but I felt like I kind of got a version of that in the Anglican church. So that wasn't compelling mm. at first. Cause in my mind, I'm like, we have yeah. beautiful liturgy. We have better liturgy in some ways, um, better music for sure. At least when it came to weekly Sunday, um, services. Yeah. yeah. And so that argument fell flat to me. And so it was kind of just a weird bag in 2014, I think is when we went to Italy for the first time because. Yeah. I, we would go to these cathedrals and they just seemed like the Catholic stuff just seemed so extra at the time. It felt like not bad or wrong, just weird and additional stuff that I didn't see anywhere mentioned in the Bible. So I don't know if you remember when we would, we went to Siena and it was uh, the cathedral there, the black and white, really cool St. Catherine. Yes. Siena's beautiful. Church. Yeah. I mean, she was there <laughs> like the body and um, I believe her body parts are kind of strewn about Europe. I, I think I'm talking mm. about the right saint where, you know, some little parish church has a finger and someone else has a big toe. And that just to me was like, that is just weird. Why do Catholics worship old relics and body parts? That's just an example yeah. of the misconceptions yeah. I had. So that yeah. is where I was at the time in Italy. You were much more like, this is really cool. I am here for it. And it seemed like if you had some kind of like outward permission, you would just deep dive right into it. Is that wrong or was that onto something? No, that's right. I mean, I think, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were in Florence, um, I was actually, th there was a, we were touring and then there was this uh, English group, English Catholic group that was, uh, that had a mass in one of the side chapels. And you guys, I think we're going to the museum to see the David after that. And um, and I said, hey, I'll catch up with you guys. I'm going to stay here and sit through Mass. And I did. And I caught you by the time. I mean, even before I think you got into the entryway where you have all the marble mm -hmm. figures I cut up with you guys. And so, um, yeah, like for me, I was I, by that point, I was pretty much all in. I wasn't 100% sure how that was going to play out and when it was going to play out and when I was going to actually become Catholic at the time, we were still um, very much not Catholic. Um, in fact, uh, I don't even think we were, we were in the Anglican church at that time. Um, so anyway, I, for me, I, I knew at that point, like I was like, this is, this is where my heart comes alive. You know, like mm -hmm. when I go to mass, whether it's in a beautiful Duomo in the middle of Florence or, you know, whether it's at a tiny, you know, uh, chapel we, there's this small church out in mountain home that sometimes when we go on fishing trips we'll stop in there and I, it's the same i I love it. it there's just something about the ritual the rope prayers the rhythm um that that has always been sort of home 
uh, to me from a spirituality perspective. It gives me a lot of space to think. So yeah, I, I mean, I was all in uh, yeah. even back yeah. then and, and felt a little bit like the outlier because I'm not sure that anybody else really cared that much. Well, and that's what I mean by I can look back and see that, yeah, I was being pulled in that direction. I just wouldn't have called it that at the time because it was soon after that that we started going to an Anglican church. And I think that was, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, that was my version of testing the waters of Catholicism because it felt like safe Catholicism, to be honest. That's what yeah. I call yeah. my time as an Anglican is that I really and truly wanted, I think, to explore Catholicism, but that sounded too scary. That sounded way too yeah. like that's that's swimming a whole river to the other side. Whereas right. Anglicanisms via media, you know, where it's like, we'll embrace some of evangelicalism and some of Catholicism and some of a little of this, little of that, we'll just go right in the middle, felt good to me. And so I could get the benefit of the stuff I really liked, like the beauty of the liturgy, without the baggage of some of the questions I had, like, what's the deal with Mary? Or what's up with all the, you know, fill in the blank. And, um, and so I think that's what was happening. In fact, I remember I went through, um, oh, I guess you would call it catechism class or something. I don't remember what it was called in the Anglican church, but it was like basically when you're exploring actually converting to the denomination of Anglicanism, you kind of go through a six-week class, sort of, kind of. And I remember day one of that class that night, I thought in my head, I bet I'm going to become Catholic one day. Like, I'll bet you I just mm. am. That's that's probably just it. Why? And I kind of just the... pushed that aside. Do you um, know why? No. And that's why I can look back and say that was out of nowhere. Like, there wasn't... I know that the speaker, the, the I think he was a priest. I don't remember exactly. He was a really great guy. And he... And it was really validating that here was a Protestant that was embracing the Catholic Church and a lot of its teachings. Like it, it wasn't anti-Catholic like the way I, I grew up. So that to me immediately felt good. But the fact that I even cared about that said something to me. Like, why am I yeah. so happy that this guy is pro-Catholic? That's weird. I'll bet you I'm going to become Catholic. And and that was so out of nowhere. And I knew so little of what it was I was talking about that I can look back and say that had to be not for me. There had to be some kind of divine so, voice. So tell me, I mean, it, it seems to me that your your journey was like from sort of, uh, you know, modern evangelicalism into um, into Anglicanism, into Catholicism. Tell me, wh- what was it that led you from sort of the modern expressions of evangelicalism into Anglicanism? Because that's a big mm-hmm. step in and of itself. It is. Um, I think there was an appeal back when we lived in Turkey as a family. So we um, were over there when our kids were young, and it was a really great experience. We lived right on the Aegean uh, Sea, and it was an hour away from Ephesus. So we're talking like part of the OG church was was created where we lived, um, you know, Turkey is a very, very old country. They say there's about 20 layers of civilization below your feet when you're standing there. And so you're just surrounded by old and historic. And so you would go to these ruins, you would go to these still standing churches that had a lot more to do with like the Eastern or a Middle Eastern approach to worship. And you just start shedding a lot of your... American centric ideas of what it means to be a Christian. 
that I was not even aware I had. And I know a lot of people that go overseas experience this kind of thing. So I'm not saying anything like that was brand new to us, but nonetheless, it happened. We had already lived in Kosovo for a while. So we already had a little bit of that like experience of what it meant to actually be a Christian versus just, you know, a modern day American who calls themselves a Christian because they were raised in America. So I already had let go of that baggage, but there was still something that really resonated with me about seeing these old mosaics, artifacts, buildings, um, and seeing that this is really how the early church was. And and it's not to say like, okay, this is exactly how we have to replicate things because, I mean, we live in a modern era, so it's okay. But it was fascinating to me that, gosh, I had spent all my life going to church on, on a Sunday morning where there was a praise and worship band, where we had communion once a month, that it was definitely only symbolic, you know, a memorial service kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And where we had youth group and we had a really long hour long sermon and called that church. And it was interesting to me that, wow, I don't think for most of the church history, it's actually been like that. So the way I was going to church was actually very, very new, not the liturgy of perhaps the Anglican church that seemed to have, seemed to be trendy. Like, gosh, a lot of our friends were starting to go to Anglican churches. Uh, There was a lot of talk on the internet that seemed to be like into the, like the cool old ways of doing things. Well, it turned out like that's actually very, very, very old and much more aligned with the original church than the way I had grown to, you know, practice my beliefs. And so when we came back to the States, I think Kyle and I were both very, road weary of cultural Christianity that looked very different than what we experienced while we lived in Turkey. And so we just wanted to go somewhere different and new. And I think there was also something really um, embracing about saying a liturgy, like actually saying words that were really old that weren't dependent on me at all. And didn't ask me for my opinion. It was like, okay, 2000 years of Christians or however many have said these words, even if I don't know what I believe at all, I can at least recite this, you know, the Nicene Creed or whatever and say, okay, I can at least rest in the foundation of this time honored uh, doctrinal statement and say, I believe this, even if I don't know what I believe about anything else. And that was really comforting to me. So, yeah. Yeah. And you find that in, in all kinds of liturgical churches, right? I mean, that's, that's Mm -hmm. not just, Anglicanism or Catholicism, you find it in the Lutheran Church, you find it in the Episcopalian Church, which is Anglicanism, uh, just a different branch of it. Uh, You find it in the Orthodox Church. Um, And I do think it's interesting, you know, I never once uh, growing up wondered about the origins of all those liturgical statements. Like, I never thought through the fact that, oh, those people over there have been doing this for a really long time. Um, but we formed our denomination, you know, a hundred years ago and a hundred and some odd years ago in response to emancipation. Uh, never thought about that. That's, that was, Mm -hmm. that was a real gasser when I got to be an adult. Um, but yeah, you don't think about the things like that. You know, you don't think about like, what are the origins of where you come from and how you got where you are? And, um, and again, you know, by the same token, not implying at all that, that, those other uh, expressions of faith are somehow less than or invalid, right? Right, right. And I think for me, that's what it came to where Anglicanism felt 
really good for a while until it no longer did. And so, um, you know, some of our, our, all our closest friends are still Anglican. And whenever we said that we were going to become Catholic, it was quite the shock because we didn't seem to have any, quote, issues with being Anglican. It was just that deep down there was something like I had mentioned earlier that it scratched all our itches. We started getting itchy again, and and it took us a while to figure out what was going on. And I think Mm. really what started happening was, so it was, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about the transcendentals. We've got beauty that can lead us to goodness, that can lead us to truth or some other direction, depending on how God talks to you. Um, I would say that it was the beauty that drew us to Anglicanism, but ultimately it's the goodness and truth that pulled us toward Catholicism, uh, bringing the beauty with it. So it was the trifecta of those that ultimately led us there, and it wasn't easy. I will just say that I – you know, I have this book, um, Evangelical Exodus, that really helped me. I, I'll get into all of this in a minute, but um, he it's a seminarian. He went to a Protestant seminary, and he basically talks about how he swam the Tiber kicking and screaming. Like, he didn't want to. It was almost like he felt like he would be disobedient if he stayed. And that's a little bit of how it was for me, kind of, sort of. Like, I, I didn't I wasn't like you, Seth, in that I was like, like, yeah, let's jump all in. I was a little bit more like Amber. Like, I'm all mm-hmm. in once it makes sense, but I never in a million years saw this coming. In fact, I say sometimes, like, if 16-year-old youth group me heard I was Catholic now, I would have put me on a prayer list, you know, and um, <laughs> questioned a lot of what has what yes. went wrong or something. So yeah. I say this yeah. to poke fun of me, not to say that if you're in that camp, then that's, you know, too bad for you. I am with you there. <laughs> Anyone listening who feels like, yeah, I don't know. So um, there were just a lot of itches I started getting that didn't add up, I guess. And so I started talking to some friends. Um, there was one in particular, Meg Teets, who is your friend as well, who yeah. um, is also a Catholic convert. She grew up Southern Baptist. And so she had a lot of the same sort of journey that we both had, but maybe her own flavor that she and I just started talking and I would ask her questions. There's also Haley Stewart, who's been on the show before, who is also a convert, but she was, she became a Catholic, I think in college or soon after. So she had been over in Rome, you know, a decade or so by then. And, but she at least knew where I would come from with some of my questions. And so they were both, I can look back and just be so grateful for their patience. Because I would just ask all sorts of things. What about this? What about that? Yeah. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. Where yeah. do you, you know, role of women, um, open communion. I mean, all the things. And th- like you said, this is not an apologetics podcast. And that's not where my gift is either. So many other people have answered those questions much better. And in fact, I will put in the show notes, I I have a page on my website that's just a collection of links for when people ask me about that. I'll say like, here, these people said it better than me because <laughs> that's just not where my gifting is. But yeah. Um. Slowly, some of those itches started to be scratched. But the one that I will say that ultimately was sort of the foundation, the one that was the real um, crux that once I could get answered all the other ones, I felt like either were answered because of that one or even if it even if it didn't make sense, I could in faith ask. God to have it make sense for me over time. And Mm. that is basically the question of says who. 
Um, and that's mm, yeah. a really broad way to say who's in charge here under whose authority. Yeah. And this yeah. is this is what I really started questioning questioning in Anglicanism is okay, we have all these ideas, but says who? You know, okay, well maybe this what the king of England back in the 15th century, but then later Thomas Cramner, then later all these other human beings who are godly, wonderful people. So I'm not saying anything about them. But when you start looking back and saying like how things bend and turn, and then whenever you don't like something, you take your ball and go elsewhere. And this is how all these denominations form. At some point, Kyle and I just kept asking, like, says who about so much of the stuff in the Anglican church that it just got kind of tiresome to realize, oh, my goodness, says whoever's in charge right now. And whenever they decide that they don't like this idea, then we'll split and divide again. And that just didn't sit right with me. And that, I know I'm being yeah. very broad brushstroke with that. I, I realize there are a bajillion caveats and issues that come into play but i'm just saying that's that was a huge question for me mm. So. Mm. yeah i had a friend who was in a similar position and was at a church he was not involved in the situation but was in a church where uh the church elders or body decided to excommunicate someone and they actually used the phrase excommunicate not like you know the more palatable like discipline or disfellowship or something like that but like you are excommunicated and it was the moment where he was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> We're going to use a very, a very loaded Catholic word to do something. Um, and under whose authority do we get to excommunicate someone from a body? And that, that was the thing that led him to start exploring. Like, what does that word mean? Where does that come from? What happened? Who gets to decide that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, it's the the question of authority ultimately is, is a is a question and i i think you know amber and i talk about this a lot like at some point if you're in a religious structure you're gonna be under some authority unless Mm -hmm. you're like you're the authority which is utterly terrifying to me like you know get the uh get the millstones ready to hang around my neck if i'm supposed to be the authority but um but but for the most part you know people are going to be under authority and the ultimate question that you have to ask is, um, at least for us, the ultimate question you had to ask was, um, is that an authority that I feel comfortable being under? Is it an authority that I feel like has stood the test of time, that's been ordained, that's been around for a while, or is it somebody just making stuff up willy-nilly, pulling right. it out their backside? And um, you know, we talk about this a lot because obviously when you talk about the issues of authority in the Catholic Church, I mean, the mind doesn't have to wander far to say, hey, yeah, but what about all the authorities that covered up the sex abuse stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, what about those guys, right? Are you going to be under that authority and you're cool with that? Yeah. Um, and and that's where, you know, for, for us, we've really wrestled with, okay, there's a difference between, you know, um, saying we are comfortable with the authoritative structure that says, like, we, we're trying to preserve the Christian church as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be and being under the authority that would say, Oh no, let's just sweep this under the rug and cover it up. Like there are times, particularly as Catholic lay people to speak out against that and to say, no, we won't, we, we won't have that. Like if your priest were to say, um, Hey, the bishops told me 
uh, to tell you to forget about this little abuse that you saw over the corner, I would say, hell no, I'm not going to forget yeah. it. I'm going to publish about it. I'm going to write about it. I'm going to be very vocal about it. That's that's actually the authority of of the layperson um, to stand up against abuse. But how do you, how did you guys deal with that with that situation? Because when you when you say things like, okay, who says so? Um, then you have to recognize that you're coming into a structure where there are people who say so, and they say things yeah. that are abusive and damaging to people. Well, so to kind of zoom back out for me, um, you know how I had already mentioned the beauty that led to goodness, that led to truth. I think where I had to sit on the idea of like the goodness, okay, this is not good. It led me to have to depend on that truth to be able to say, and I think this is what you're ultimately talking about as well, um, to say who's in charge here. So if we were to back back up actually to the idea of who's in charge or says who, um, we can actually go all the way back to the New Testament, right? Where Jesus, when he established the church by giving Peter the keys, um, he wasn't talking about an invisible church, right? Or an invisible kingdom. This just kind of um, woo-woo idea of like, we're all one body of believers as Christians. He was actually referring to Isaiah, I believe, chapter 22, in a symbolic gesture of handing Peter keys that basically connected him to the structure where, again, not an apologist, but we can really smart people have helped me come to peace with the idea of like, oh, he was actually anointing him as the first vicar of Christ whenever he ascends into heaven. And so we're talking actual doctrinal um, submission on my part to say like, oh, this is what Jesus meant whenever he kept talking again and again and again about wanting us to be a unified body, right? He he talks about that almost more than anything else. And um, and unity above all else, almost, right? Where it seemed like this was so important that he wanted us to stay together and work out our issues like a family instead of taking our ball and going elsewhere. And so in light of all this, this is why it took me quite a few years to really wrestle with this because as a Protestant and as an American in a modern era, all these things are very, like just this idea is very un-American, un-Western, mm-hmm. unmodern. This idea of submitting to an authority that has a clear track record of not being perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it, it's also like sometimes when you use the same word, but you mean different things, you know? Um, so types of authority, for example, in a local parish look very different in a non-denominational Bible church or evangelical church than it does the Catholic church. Whereas the lead pastor is not like what says is, you know, thus saith the Lord, draw a line in the sand. There's a lot, like you said, of infrastructure within the Catholic church that has a whole heck of a lot of accountability within itself to make sure that the gates of hell do not prevail against it. So it's not just about like some guy who's great on YouTube or who wears really good jeans and can do his hair right, who says things really great. And I'm being snarky, I realize. Um, most There are amazing, amazing Protestant pastors and leaders. So, you know, this is just me. Um, yeah. But yeah. there are some, there's some meat, there's some bones, there's some foundation behind the idea of authority. And so kind of the joke Kyle and I said 
when we got when we came to that place, kind of like the the person in the book I was talking about earlier, where you just kind of reluctantly swim the Tiber, was we just became tired of being our own pope. And I know you had mentioned mm. like, gosh, a millstone around my neck when I'm the one in charge. But honestly, a lot of us act that way, even if we we never would admit yeah. it. How often do we just decide we need to find a new church whenever? It just doesn't sit well with us anymore without really thinking about, okay, does it not sit well with me because the latest trendy way to look at doctrine is X, Y, and Z? Again, not throwing anyone else under the bus. This is just a, a thing that we are want to do in our postmodern era, right? Um, but it is very tiresome to be in charge of what's true and what's not or how to interpret mm-hmm. the Bible. And, and then ultimately – Whenever you can ask says who, a lot of churches in the Protestant world rely on the sola scriptura, right? The idea of if it's in the Bible, then that's what says who it is. But I I really like this one. I don't know if you know who Father Mike Schmitz is, but he's uh, a guy. My kids really – I mean, he's actually a very approachable, answers things really well kind of guy that I'm very grateful for, for being on the internet. But he has this thing where he talks about, like, ultimately, every Christian that's, you know, has more or less orthodox doctrine believes in the authority of the Catholic Church. And the reason is because they believe in the Bible. And it's the Bible that, like, who decided what's in the Bible? Well, a council, the Council of Rome and what, 389 or whatever that is? Um, Yeah, yeah. Before then, Irenaeus and all these other dudes, we didn't have the canon of scripture at all. There wasn't this like definitive Bible. And so we all do actually believe in the authority that comes outside of the Bible because we had to create the Bible. So I say all that not to be snarky, just to say that these are the things that I personally really had to question and, and basically submitted to ultimately. And no one was more surprised than me because honestly, yeah, all this is very un-American and unmodern, but it's also very un-me. Like it's not, if anyone knows me, knows how autonomous I am, knows how independent I am and knows how much I like to be in charge of me. And so to to submit to something like this, like the Catholic church is a big deal. So yeah. How about Yeah, it is a big deal. It is a, (laughs) it is a big deal. I mean, I don't even know where to jump off there. Um, But I I will say like even, even some of those, the the arguments, um, the arguments of my youth just stopped making sense to me. I mean, I think that was the big thing for me is is yeah. the argument of sola scriptura. Even uh, we we were actually raised in a sola environment. Uh, it was very reformed, hmm. um, and that one just never made sense to me because there's yeah. really nowhere in scripture that says that, which was right. ironic that that uh, a, a doctrine or an idea would be taken and made up whole cloth from from somewhere who knows from somebody's head um and a very smart head very good head and there are certainly scriptures that would support the idea um but there's 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 really nowhere that says hey look this canonized scripture is the very thing that you're you know is the only place where we get anything good of any merit you know for living your life and spirituality um now certainly i believe in the authority of scripture i'm not trying to like underplay it or anything but but I think for me, it was just the continued, uh, you know, the, the continued, the, the arguments that sort of self-defeated themselves that led me to a place where like, I was like, wait, wait a second, what? Um, but also like, to be really clear too, uh, like for me, the decision was made much easier mm-hmm. by the continued marriage of uh, evangelicalism and white nationalism. 
Like, I'm just yeah. going to say it. Like, it just made it easier. It was not a rationale for me becoming Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. Plenty, plenty. Most Anglicans I know, um, in fact, maybe all Anglicans I know, in fact, um, would would viscerally react the same way uh, to this mm-hmm. marriage of, of Christianity and white nationalism. Um, but for me, it became very clear that somewhere along the way, the American church... Um, in mass, not in total, right? But but in large part, the American church had sort of lost its way and yeah. had, uh, to some degree, uh, substituted uh, the the faith of the olden days with a faith that was syncretized uh, with American nationalism and militarism and might and white exceptionalism and all these things. And I can certainly tell you, and it's a much longer conversation. Yeah. But I can certainly tell you that that was the truth in the church I grew up in. Hmm. Uh, we had, you know, functional parades on the July on July fourth or uh, Memorial Day or whatever the event was. You know, we had a, a ceiling sized American flag that hung in our sanctuary. In fact, it's wow. such a caricature of American faith that I actually called my mom and said, "Am I remembering that right? Because surely we didn't do that." And she was like, "Oh no, no, yeah, we did that." Um, <laughs> And and so and I, there's a friend. I have another friend who's um, who who was brought up in a in a very conservative um, uh, sort of environment, and, and and he said there were no icons in the sanctuary, um, but there was an American flag. But it was not like an American flag on stage right or stage left. It was actually there was like a little alcove above the. Like just the way the building was made, there was like an alcove or a cutout in the ceiling that just happened to be above the pulpit. It was just a mm-hmm. design feature. And so the congregation decided to hang an American flag in that little alcove uh, oh, and wow. stretch it out. And so there was literally an American flag hanging as a banner over the pulpit where the scriptures were opened, right? So just imagine wow. that from a metaphorical perspective. And I think for me, I think that's when I when I ultimately looked and I said, okay, I was raised with a bunch of self-defeating um, theological propositions. I was raised, um, one, to love the scriptures, which is awesome, but I was also raised in a place where they were sometimes, oftentimes syncretized with American mm-hmm. exceptionalism and white nationalism, and we see the fruit of that in the last election cycle. Um, I was raised in a church that I, I really don't remember many minorities. I remember one black family and maybe a couple of uh, Asian families, mm-hmm. but I don't remember any anybody that it was a huge church. It was almost all white. Um, I don't remember any sort of like actual global attitude other than we got to go save all the poor people. Um, so give your money to the missions board yep. and let's go save people. Um, I think the older I got, just the hollower that felt. Mm-hmm. And it felt less about God and a whole lot more about us, you know. And and even when we moved into Bible church contexts, it became more and more that way. And mm-hmm. um and 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 not everyone is like that. I mean, there are amazing churches here that I recommend in Fayetteville all the time to people who are not Catholic. I tell them all the time, like Hey, go to Christ community. Hey, go to fellowship. Like here are the churches that are amazing places for where you are in your life. So I'm not saying that everyone's like that. It was just for me, those spaces began to remind me too much Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. of the way I was brought up, and that and that started to be a real detriment to my own spirituality. So maybe it's that yeah. I'm just too weak to stay in those spaces. But I I really was craving something that was global, not just we're going to go save people, but was was global in actuality. Yeah. Uh, that was historical. That uh, stayed tied to to creeds and wrote prayers and. Uh, the words of the scriptures and and ultimately for me it, it you know it was a eucharistic movement too so um yeah. so that's kind of where i come from but but yeah i think ultimately when i look at at the trajectory of the modern american church like i just don't see myself in it yeah that's the truth yeah. well and i think you're speaking ultimately the same kind of issue i had of authority you know the whole says who when Jesus, who is the founder of the church, right, um, harped on and on about unity. That's what he was talking about, right? A global church. And so I, yeah. I there's that one phrase, it's super corny, but I, I still think it's kind of great where it's like, there's a Catholic church, here comes everybody. It's kind of that idea, like you've got that mix yeah. of all sorts. So yeah. when um, we go to our parish here in our neighborhood, which is a whole other thing, you know, that that's a nice benefit is there's yeah, Catholic. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're all, every single person on the planet is under a diocese of the Catholic church, whether they know it or not. Um, so yeah. it's, it's all the neighborhood concept of, of being part of a parish, but we go and it is all sorts of skin colors, like all sorts of languages we hear all sorts of, you know, I mean, we, there are services in different languages, Spanish. I know, yeah. you know, there's yep. Vietnamese, our, our, head pastor our priest is vietnamese um and we have a hard time hearing understanding him sometimes but i love that you know and i love raising my kids in this visual tangible you know reminder of this is what the church actually looks like um it is not putting us at the center and kind of with that idea um i'm not the center of the mass at all like i am not it's not about me remotely, you know, it really is Eucharistic in nature. And that's, we didn't even get into saints and sacraments, which is probably my number two reason, but to kind of, so that we don't make this a three hour chat, the idea of authority and the whole says who and recognizing and submitting to the idea that perhaps this is how Jesus actually meant for things to be set up meant that I could still wrestle with all these other things. So I just wanted to say that for those who are listening and say like, okay, I hear you, but what about these 17 other things? And it's like, I'm with you. I had the exact same issues when it came to like all the questions about saints. And about still might on some of those questions. I still have questions. I still don't know why the heck we totally. have certain days. And I'm like, that's weird. I, I got to tell you, I don't get it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I find comfort in hearing that there are cradle Catholics who feel the same way. So it's not just me who think like, yeah, that's weird that we do that. But I mean, here's the other thing. We all have a liturgy. So Protestant, low church, you know, Assembly of God style churches, they have a liturgy too. Maybe they don't call it that, but we all have a liturgy. We all have a way, a work of the people, a way we do things. For me, there's just a lot of comfort in being part of a liturgy that's really, really old and really, really global. And I think that's maybe what you're saying too. Yeah. Yeah. So to put a bow on this, um, if you've Mm -hmm. stuck with us for this long, first of all, thanks. That's great. Um, (laughs) But second of all, realize that we're in no way saying that this is um, a decision that you should go make. That's not what we're saying. 
Um, but we get this question enough, both of us do, that we thought, hey, it's worth a conversation. It's worth mm-hmm. talking about. And, you know, we'll probably be back to- talking about books or literature or something else in a, a week yeah. or so. But um, this is the question that we get asked. And so we're giving you the answer that we know the best. Um, but we're also saying, hey, listen, like you're on your own journey, you're in your own place, you're in your own space, your spirituality may be best served in another way um, for now. And so or maybe forever. And so explore that, experience it, ask the questions. Don't be afraid of questions. Don't be afraid of tough answers. And don't be afraid to push back either against anyone, yeah. including us. Yeah. So, including us. Um, yeah. yeah. So with that said, Tish, I think that wraps yeah. up this episode, except for what's one thing that you're listening to, reading, watching, viewing, etc., that's bringing uh, some goodness to your life. Um, I just started this yesterday, so I'm only a few pages in. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just go ahead and bring it up since I knew this is what we were talking about today. So it is a book that I got by a man named Joshua Hren. I think I'm saying his name right. It's called How to Read and Write Like a Catholic. So I think you would actually really like this, Seth. I um, am prayerfully exploring the idea of going back to school to get my MFA, maybe. I do not know. Okay. But one of the schools I'm looking at is University of St. Thomas in Houston, Mm. which is more or less in my neighborhood when you consider the whole earth. Um, And this is the man that created the MFA program at that school. And so he, um, him and one other man, and he, he oversees the fiction wing. The other guy does the poetry wing. So I got this book and oh my gosh, to me, it's kind of like an MFA in paper form. So perhaps if I don't go back to school, I'll just read this book. Um, It's really meaty, really (sighs) dense. I had no idea it would be as long as it was when I got it. It was like, oh, this is almost 500 pages. Okay. So um, that's why I feel a little bit like, oh, do I know much about it yet? But so far, it's really good. It's a slow read because I want to catch a lot of it. But it's I'm highlighting lots of pages, and it's really excellent so far. So how to read and write like a Catholic. If anything, the appendix in the back is fantastic because it gives some really great reading lists. So you know, if that's all you use it for, then I, it might be worth it just for that. So yeah, I'll put it in the show. Notes. That's awesome, and and it's within a hundred uh, miles of where you live. It is, right? And Isn't Houston mostly... within so, so you could listen. You could go get your MFA there, and you could still be living by your local rule. That's right. I mean, I, it's a little bit outside of that, but here's the thing: it's one of those places that it's it's mostly an online uh, program with like ten days total, you know, in person. So yeah. I'm willing to fudge. So if you averaged out, if you averaged yeah, out the number, yeah, if you averaged out the numbers of days that you did it online and the number of days you went to class, it yeah. would definitely be within a hundred, hundred mile radius. Indeed, like it would probably be in my neighborhood, honestly, a few blocks away when you averaged it. Yeah, like that. there you go. All right, how about you? you? What go. are you enjoying that's adding more beauty to your days? Well, I have gotten back into, I've returned to the work of Henry Cartier-Bresson, the French photographer that I love. I think I've talked about him here before. Yep, you have. Um, it, yeah, and it's just the idea of the definitive moment, of capturing the definitive moment. And I was thinking about capturing the definitive moment the other day. And so I just thought, I'm going to go back and just really study his work again. Hmm. Um, and I actually saw a couple shots that I have inadvertently, I inadvertently tried to recreate a couple years ago and I didn't even oh, realize cool. that I was doing it. And then when I saw the shot, I was like, Oh, that's what I was doing. That's fun. <laughs> um, yeah. and of course my, my versions of the shot didn't turn out nearly as well, uh, as his, but in any event, there is a particular photo 
um, of some women on a Kashmiri plane overlooking the Himalayas. One has her hands raised in prayer. And Mm. I just, I've always loved this photo and I just can't get enough of it. And I have it pulled up um, sort of as the background to my computer. Just as I work, I'll look over at it and just kind of study it and take a peek at it. And it is such a good photo. And it says so many things. Do you know the name of it? Like if I were to, if someone were to look it up, what we could find? Uh, Well, I would be terribly, I would, I would hate to pronounce it. Um, But if you look up, Henry yeah. Cartier-Bresson, which is H-E-N-R-I, Cartier, like right. the watch, Bresson, B-R-E-S-S-O-N, and then you type yeah. in cashmere, you will 100% we'll find, it. find it. We'll put it in the show notes because I'm already looking through Google right. for it. So I bet I'll, I'll find it in the next minute or two. So Oh, yeah. You, you'll you'll find it the minute you press images. Cool. All right. Nice. That's very so, fun. Yeah. I like that yep. one. Yeah. Yep. Good choice. All right. Well, I would be curious if our listeners um, had follow-up questions or future topics they want us to cover. So um, if you do after hearing this, or if you're like, you know what, I've, I heard all I need to know now, please talk about, you know, what movie you're going to watch this weekend. That's great too. Um, I'm just curious what information you guys like from us. So feel free to reach out to us and tell us if you want us to talk about something in particular. So um, you can find this episode as well as all episodes, as always, at a drinkwithafriend.com. If you like the show and what we are doing here, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. In particular, I want you to, um, I want to highlight somebody. So um, be like Lisa. Lisa, Seth, just bought us five drinks. And she says, Way to go, Lisa. Thanks. She said, y'all, I know. Thanks, Lisa. Y'all, please keep doing your thing. I love listening, reading, and in general, just hearing what y'all are thinking about from your perspectives. I usually drink, or no, not drink. I usually listen on my drive home. I hope she doesn't drink on her drive home. Um, she got herself <laughs> and, and her brother the Drink with a Friend t-shirts for Christmas. And she says, clearly, I like thinking, reading, and wearing t-shirts. Cheers. So thank you very much, Lisa, for that. We appreciate it. So be like Lisa. Um, you're except for don't drink and drive. (laughs) Yeah. Except apparently I just outed her. (laughs) Um, sorry, Lisa. Um, also as a reminder, we'd love for you to join us in Tuscany, $250 off by May 31st. And that is really soon. In fact, by the time we're recording, well, no, it'll still, you'll still have a few days by the time you listen to this, but only a few days. So if you want to join us in Tuscany this summer, now is the time to sign up. There's room for you and your friends. So come on along. You'll find the link to do that in the show notes of this episode. Uh, you can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? sethhaines.substack.com. Or you can also follow me on Instagram at sethhaines because we're almost almost finish with this experiment of uh, my Uh social media fast. Yeah, and we'll be talking about it soon, I bet. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here with you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.